You are listening to Walking Home from the ICU. We will be exploring how to save and preserve lives in the ICU. All opinions and views shared are unaffiliated with any organization. Hey team, I recently did a case study on the wonderful podcast, Critical Care Scenarios. If you've never heard of the podcast, go check it out. It may be a good idea to listen to the episode I just did with him prior to listening to this next episode here. We have Megan Wakely with us to share it with us, her side of the story told on Critical Care Scenarios. When I posted pictures of Megan standing with her ET tube, chest tube, Foley catheter, physical therapist, and nurse smiling with a thumbs up, People on social media have repeatedly asked, so why isn't she extubated? Or things like, well, she's young. Our patients are actually sick. Little do they suspect that at the time of the photo, Megan was on a peep of 18 and 100%. Telling Megan's story to the ICU community, how she was treated, her responses and outcomes, is like telling people the world is flat. It defies all of our ingrained culture and logic. So I'm excited to have Megan tell you her side of her story and prove to the critical care world what can and should be. Megan, thank you so much for being willing to join us. I just feel like I'm reuniting with an old friend. We were just talking before we started the recording about just how hard and yet sweet some of our interactions were in the ICU. So this is pretty neat to be able to actually hear your voice and to see your face, even though this is just an audio recording. Megan, will you introduce yourself to us and tell us a about, about yourself? Hi, I'm Megan Wakely. I have a beautiful daughter I have, that I love and love to spend time with and I was born here in Logan and live in Hiram, and I've been here my whole life. So. And what was li- life like before you entered the ICU? I, well, I could do a lot more physically. Obviously, I, swimming and camping, fishing, lots of active things. But it's, yeah, it's changed a lot. <laughs> Yeah. And you'd gone through some really hard things too, if you don't mind me bringing that up. Yeah. You'd been through some trauma and you had recently lost your mother, correct? Yeah. My husband died three years before that. And then my mom had passed away just a few months before I was in ICU. She passed away in December. So you've been through all these hard things and had been through some, some trauma, some abuse, correct? And then in throughout those struggles that kind of led to this um, situation of being dependent on alcohol and benzodiazepines, you're on Xanax, correct? And during this very valid depression, you probably weren't eating very well. So you had a baseline alcoholism, benzodiazepine dependence, and malnutrition. And you developed what's called ALPS or ALPS. It's alcoholic leukopenic pneumococcal sepsis. So it sounds like you were pretty sick for 
about a week before you ever went to the hospital. I was really sick. I sh- now looking back on it, I should have went in. I was just hacking for a good week and a half. And I don't, in my mind at the time, I was thinking it's just the cough. Every time you go to the doctor, all they say is buy some cough medicine and go home. Right. So I, I, Little did you know that you had this horrific necrotizing pneumonia that turned into cavitary pneumonia and this rampaging sepsis going on your body. And simultaneously, you went into alcohol withdrawal. And you went to an outside hospital in another city away from the wake and walking ICU. And you were admitted to the ICU and quickly put on a ventilator. And you were deeply sedated because that's what we, autom- well, not we, that's what the ICU community automatically does. And so you continue to have these really big risk factors for ICU delirium. You had alcohol withdrawal. Granted, by the time you got to the hospital, you were probably towards the end of it. You had sepsis and then you were being given deep sedation. What do you remember about that time under sedation? What kind of experiences did you have while you were in a medically induced coma? Like the hallucination or dreams that I, I had a lot and to me, they were real and in my head I remember talking to people that were visiting me about it and I don't even know if that's real because I haven't got there's so much information like I learned something new that happened there all the time but the dreams I did have or hallucinations it was I thought that one of the nurses had taken me home to her house to take care of me and I was in the house with her and her family and they wouldn't let me leave and then the doctor was there it it was just bizarre and then I thought there was a a little kid in my room that was lost from their mom hiding I was it scary to you like what did you feel during those hallucinations I thought it was completely happening to me it was I was frustrated with people because they didn't know I don't even know if when I went to talk to someone if that happened ever because I feel like it happened a little later too when I could actually talk or write Uh uh-huh I'm not sure yeah because you spent probably a week being deeply sedated and you just kept getting worse. And the team at the other hospital started talking about going to comfort care. They started talking about maybe withdrawing the ventilator, telling your family to prepare for the end of your life. And your dad was not having that. And cause you were Thank 31 you. years old and you have, you had a toddler at home and you had a long life ahead of you was the hope. So they had you transferred to the awake and walking ICU. So by the time you rolled into our doors, you had spent a week in septic shock and a medically induced coma, severe delirium. I think you were at the end of alcohol withdrawal and your ventilator settings were pretty high. So I go into this a lot. And the interview that I did on critical care scenarios 
But your ventilator settings were probably obviously on the cis control peep of about 14 or 16 and 60 to 80% when you were admitted to RICU. And you were also still on some vasopressors, meaning you were still in shock. Your blood pressure was still pretty low. Granted, that may have been in part from the sedation. So once we kind of got you all tucked in, the next thing we had to do was look back, step back and look at the big picture. So we knew that your lungs were really bad. You had pockets of infection and your lung was basically being ravaged by the infection. And so, and you had anything to do with my ribs being fractured or no. Um, I know, I think it, this is, this kind of infection is more to do with just the alcohol. Yeah. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think, I think this just was mostly was infectious, but your ribs have been fractured from abuse, right? Yeah. Did you, when you were in the, the coma, did those events or those situations ever come back to you? No, not at right. all, which that was a really big concern to us because we knew as a really important part of your history is that you had PTSD and we were really worried about that being relived while you were in the coma because that a lot of survivors talk about that happening. And so that's a huge risk factor for having post ICU PTSD. You know, if you can imagine whatever you went through, going through that as vividly as thinking that you were being brought home to the nurse's house and being held captive. Right. So that was part of our discussion. We said, she's got sick lungs. She's got this massive infection throughout her body, but she also has to be protected. And so as far as your brain um, and your physical capacity, cause you were malnourished at baseline. You were so tiny. I, I don't remember how much did you weigh? Like 90 pounds, 80 pounds. I think they said I gained weight with the feeding tube. So <laughs> you so. were so small and then you would atrophied just laying in bed, um, having septic shock at the outside facility. And so we were really worried that I, it... go ahead. No, I just remember my bones. Like I could feel and see my bones laying in there and I was like, Oh, this is so gross. You were, you were a skeleton in the bed. It truly like you were very gaunt. And so that all played into our, our decision-making in that moment. You know, we have a very sick young woman in our, in our hospital room, but keeping you in a coma was not on our to-do list because we wanted you to be able to walk. We were afraid that you wouldn't be able to walk when we were to try, because you probably lost whatever little muscle you had at the time. We knew that you had high risks of having post ICU, what we call dementia we didn't want you to lose more cognitive function because that would really impact your life. We didn't want you to have worse PTSD because obviously that's what's led to the substance abuse. And that was going to be a battle you would have to face the rest of your life. So we might as well do everything possible to prevent that from being worse and having decreased cognitive capacity to fight that battle. So here we are looking at you and you're so sick, but we, we know that we have to wean back sedation. So we do. We gently wean it back and you are just like our worst nightmare. I mean, just like we feared, right? We were so afraid of you coming out cuckoo and, and you were, you were deeply delirious. You were thrashing. You were trying to pull out your tube. You were so agitated that you even bit through your tube, which someone on such high ventilator settings, that's scary because you 
can't maintain that pressure when there's a hole in your tube. So we had to switch out that tube. And as we did, we gave you deep sedation again and had to recalibrate and re- and decide again. Okay. So what's our plan? Got upset with me. Which, which doctor? I, th- I don't know. I think there was a doctor that got upset with me. I, everyone was probably yelling at you. Do you remember that? Do you remember what that was like to be let out of your sedation and to be so agitated? What was that like for you? I didn't know what was going on. I just remember him saying this, this is your lifeline. This is like trying to let me know that I can't keep ripping it up, that this is keeping me alive. And uh, I was like, what is, what is he talking about? What is going on? What is Do you remember wanting that thing out? Not, not until I became fully aware. So you were so out of it. You couldn't even relate to anything being in your throat. No, it was probably just natural reaction. Yeah. Yank it out. Absolutely. And, and it's really hard. Like you were a lot of work. No, and don't be sorry. I I only say that because that's something that I think the listeners can relate to is that when people are delirious, they are so much work. And, and yeah, you might have some yelling, like, Hey, we're trying to reorient you. Like, don't pull that out. You're in the hospital trying so desperately to bring you back to reality. Cause when patients are in reality, which you eventually came back to us, you're so much easier to manage, but there's that time, there's that period when it is just a bucking rodeo and it's so difficult and, and it's dangerous. So biting through a tube, pulling a tube out, that is dangerous, but it's also dangerous to leave you deeply sedated. It's dangerous to let your muscles atrophy to the point of not being able to stand up. It's dangerous to break your brain and cause a brain injury. So we had to really carefully decide risk versus benefits and which dangers we were okay with in the moment and how we were going to work through those. So we decided that you needed some kind of sedation for that moment. Right. So we put you on Presidex and I think at the outside hospital, I suspect that you were getting something like Versed for sedation. And so you at baseline had benzodiazepine dependence. So we recognized that we need to give you something for benzodiazepine dependence in case you were in withdrawal from Xanax. So we put you on clonopin and Presidex, and I think probably fentanyl as well. And, but we titrated it around to a RAS of zero. So we wanted, our goal for you was for you to not be comatose. We didn't want you to be so asleep that we couldn't get you to sit up and participate and try to walk. But we wanted you calm enough that you could do those things. And so that was our goal. That's so we found some sedation. We played around with it a lot. And you had a nurse. Her name was Shauna. Is Shauna. She's been there for 30 years. She's one of my mentors. And she is so skillful. And she just hung by your side. I, I remember you, her. You remember her. I, I'm glad you should remember her because she took care of you for weeks. But when you initially came in, it was so much work and I just, I get emotional. I was so moved by how dedicated Shauna was to keeping you safe and not just keeping your, keeping you in restraints, but she was really worried about what was going to happen, not during her shift, what was going to happen in a week or two, because throughout the following days, your lungs kept getting worse. And there was talk about sending you to another facility for ECMO, but at that facility, they don't walk patients. And so when they were, they were wanting to transfer you before your lungs got worse, but it wasn't, you weren't necessarily destined for ECMO yet. So we were in this kind of gray area and Shauna threw her hands on the desk during rounds and almost yelled. And she is a very patient, calm 
composed person, but she said, no way you are sending her to that facility because if they, if you send her there, she will stay in bed and rot even more. And then if she ends up in ECMO, there's nothing for them to work with. She'll be so deconditioned. And so to prevent you from going to that facility, to prove to the higher ups that you weren't quote unquote that sick, she was determined to get you out of bed. So right after rounds, she grabbed Angela, the physical therapist. And she's like, we're getting her butt out of bed. We're getting her out. Yeah. I remember Angela too. Uh, you, yeah. She's Angela saved your life. Let's be honest. Angela and Shauna saved your life because in that moment, um, you could have just been shipped off to another facility, but these women grabbed your 80 pound body <laughs> and they put a gate belt on you and your family was there and they, you know, lightened up the sedation. I mean, you were already lightly sedated and they tried to get you up and you were so weak and so delirious that you could barely put one foot in front of the other. You could barely put weight on your legs. You were so weak. And I think from the ICU side, we get so scared because we don't want people to fall, but they knew that if you didn't walk, then you weren't going to walk in a few weeks. And so they were almost carrying you. And then you started to take your own steps. Do you remember that moment or what was that like to be a walking zombie? I don't know if it was my first walk that I woke up in the middle of, but I remember waking up mid-walk and all of a sudden all, you know, the machines and people and everything's in front of my face and I'm standing there. I just remember my sister-in-law being there and she kept telling me to look at her, look at her, look at her. So I did. And she just kept telling me, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Just walk, just walk. And she's so familiar and I trusted her. So I just, okay. So I did it. What would that have been like if she wasn't there? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Every one being there really made a big difference, I think. And I, I've repeatedly said in, in some different podcasts that our only tool, quote unquote, is, is walking for delirium, that we don't have a good medication or specific treatments for delirium other than walking. But you remind me of such a strong point, family, walking and family are the only two tools. There really are two tools that we have to combat delirium as well as sleep hygiene and things like that. But you make a perfect example. You woke up during walking and I would invite everyone to go to the Instagram or Facebook page and look at Megan's videos. I think the video that I have is probably your second or third walk. So it wasn't even the big hauling you, like lifting you in, in, in the air kind of moment, but you still were a hot mess. And, and yet during that walk, you would, then you would stop and take a break and you'd start riding on the board. And yeah, what does that, that mean to you to write to us? Yeah, did it make sense what I was writing? Because I don't remember writing. Like... Uh, no, I don't think it made a, a very much sense at first. And there's, I hope that the listeners have seen it, but there is a delirium handwriting. And it's not just chicken scratch. It's like a drunk chicken. Like it's loopy and it's 
disconnected and we try so hard to discern what it means, but yet at least your hand is holding a pencil and you know that you're supposed to write and you're trying to communicate something. It's a step. And as, but, it, and it really reflects what's going on in your brain and it clear, it clears out after a while. So we start to right. be able to discern certain words or catch things and try to answer your questions. Cause I think what you initially start writing are questions. Like, where am I? Why am I here? Things that I will help. I had gotten in a car wreck. I, oh. I remember going to Instacare and then saying they can give me a shot for my pneumonia or I can go up to the emergency room to have them look at it more. So they gave me the option. I could have had the option of just getting a shot and going home that day. That's terrifying. Which probably wouldn't have been good. And so I don't remember going to the, I remember Instacare and I don't remember anything after that. I don't remember going to the emergency room being. Yeah. Then you just have all these crazy hallucinations. You think you're yeah. you know, held at some nurse's house and people are yelling at you. And then you think you're in a car accident and suddenly your sister-in-law is there saying walk. Yeah. And then you're trying to write to us on a board. And I have pictured that as well. And, and as you sat in that wheelchair in the hallway, trying to write and I think the patient team was so patient because we didn't make sense but it was important to you to try to communicate to us and we wanted to know where you were at in that moment Erica one of our techs tried to brush out your hair and your hair was just matted and I'm sure you weren't really able to brush it before you went to the hospital you were in alcohol withdrawal then you were spending a week in, in a coma and you really can't deeply wash someone's hair. You can't really brush someone's hair when their backs on the, on the bed. And so it was, it was really, really matted. And the, so the second you were in the chair and Erica saw that she had access to your hair, she's like that. Yep. I am going to brush that out. She spent hours on it every time you walked every time. And then after your walk, you would sit in a chair for a while or before your walk. And then she would brush it out more. I mean, there are two techs that spent to so much time, little by little working on your hair the next two days. And finally, after a few days, I saw, I walked in one day and it was in braids and I said, by golly, they did it because it was so matted, but yet it was really important to them for you to be able to feel like yourself. They knew that that would help bring you back to who you really are and to be able to look forward to your future. If your hair was brushed, which sounds so simple, but what did that mean to you to be able to take a shower to be able to have your hair in braids or those, the little things, what does that mean to you during that period of in between, in between worlds? It, it was a lot because it, you just, you feel kind of gross just laying there all, all day and all the side effects I had from the antibiotics and all that. All the things. You just feel gross. And so to have that just feel fresh and clean. And I loved it when they wanted, when they'd come in and ask to do my hair or if, you know, if I wanted it braided or anything, I loved that. That was while you were on the ventilator I mean, you were on the ventilator almost the whole time that I see you and you were, you remember them doing your hair and you were given the choice, the option. I remember most of the stay I think I think it was just the first bit I don't remember and so what do you remember after that so you kind of come to while you're walking 
which has got to be so weird. You're suddenly walking on a ventilator. Weird. And then I think I kind of blacked out again after that. Yep. Because you fell asleep. After those walks, those first few walks, we were able to take the sedation down. Each time we decrease it by, by more because you were so tired and you were coming out of delirium that you didn't need so much sedation. So we continued the A to F protocol, meaning we kept trying to sneak it back and reassess every time, not just here are her settings. This is the way she's going to be for the next week. But we wanted you to keep a RAS of zero by yourself. So if you were asleep, getting real sleep, we didn't want Presidex to throw off your sleep. So we start to wean it back. And if you needed it more later, that's fine. But you eventually, after like a day or two of walking, you didn't need anything besides the normal like clonopin and maybe some fentanyl because you were having some chest tubes for the cavitary pneumonia. Oh yeah. Those are not fun. <laughs> no, it was so painful. And you were able to tell us about your pain. Mm-hmm. What did that mean to you to be able to say, because you told me about your anxiety, you told me about your pain. What did it mean to you to be able to tell me? what you were experiencing and what you needed. I mean, I was glad I could communicate, but honestly with that tube, I'd get so frustrated just wanting to get out how I'm feeling or what I need or. Because you couldn't talk, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was totally new communication, which I'm glad I could do, but it was. No, it's a learning curve and it is a different language, you know, trying to read lips and trying to write it down. And it's a test of patience for everybody. Absolutely. But you wrote a lot. I have pictures of you writing to your sister-in-law and you had your dog in the bed. What did it mean to you to be able to write to them, to connect with them and to have even your, be able to know that your dog was there? That was everything. The first week my friend was there, I guess. I don't remember her being there at all. No memory of that. But I do remember my sister-in-law being there and bringing my dog up. And I don't know how it would have turned out without them there, but it was. When people say, and we say this all the time in the ICU world. No, if I was on a ventilator, I would want to be snowed out meaning I want to be deeply 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 sedated I don't want to move a muscle if I'm on a ventilator now that you've had it both ways what would you say to them I mean if you get knocked out and you're not coherent there's no progress and it's not fun to be on the ventilator it's not enjoyable to have a tube down your throat but the progress that I made And even with that progress, when I went to the rehab place, I fell down in the bathroom and I didn't think much of it. I was just like, oh, I kind of tipped over getting undressed and I went to pull myself up. There was no way, no way that I could do it, not even lift myself a little bit. And so I can't imagine being laid out, not moving at all. Yeah. I mean, we caught you in time to prevent you becoming so weak that you couldn't lift a finger yet. We've interviewed other survivors where they, they talk about just the exhaustion of trying to reach the remote to push the on button or to turn the TV off. Like they just, she just tried to will her finger to push the button and could not do it. How frustrating would that be? I mean, it's already frustrating enough. You lost a lot of strength. And 
and it took a while for you to really be able to walk well, even once your brain got better, you still, you were so weak that, that you required some, some assistance and support. And I kept telling you, I want you to, or that if you do this, you will walk out of here. So what did that mean to you to have that vision of walking out of the ICU? Hope, a goal, definitely a goal. And the motivation to get up and walk, because there is days that I just didn't want to walk, but they were adamant that I had to. And some there were days that I wanted to, or times that I was excited to get out and go. And there were times that it was, I just felt exhausted, but I did it. And and when you did, when you did it, what impact did that have on your anxiety? Cause you were having real anxiety. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, it was awful. Yeah. It was, I was worried about my daughter, my home, my pets. Like, so when you would walk, how did you feel after compared to before? Better, more relaxed. I knew I'd feel better after it was just the, Cause there were times that I felt like I couldn't get any air and all the nurses, everyone would check my oxygen and show me, you know, you, you're getting plenty of air, but it just felt like I couldn't breathe did, at all. Did you feel like you were able to breathe better when you were in a chair and or walking? It, yeah, it was fine walking. It wasn't the walking that made it bad. It was because I remember sitting in the room when they were turning down my ventilator. I, that's when it started to get harder is turning it down when I was. Yeah. I mean, your lungs were so stiff and also so necrotic. I mean, they were talking possible lobectomy because your lungs were so, so just necrotic. I mean, they did so much of your lung had died. But what is that? How would they take take out part of your lung? Do I still have functioning on both sides? I don't, I don't remember. I haven't, I don't remember the last CTs that I, I saw of your lungs other than they were just really impressive. I don't remember. I think one side was worse than the other, according yeah. to my memory. And, and your ventilator settings got worse. So you ended up needing like a peep of 18 and like 80%, even up to hundred percent. And yeah, you kept walking and your walking got better, even though you were requiring more support from the ventilator. And so we didn't want you to have to sit on, sit on that much support and that high of pressure on the ventilator. So we tried to prone you. We tried to lay you on your stomach if, twice and you always breathed better. You always got more oxygen when you were walking versus prone. So otherwise we wouldn't have known what would have helped. I, we've, I, I just... It was repeatedly said that anywhere else you would have died by then. Your and your infection would have been worse. Your you definitely wouldn't have been able to breathe on your own by the end of it because your lungs were so stiff. And you were one you were one of the very few people I've ever seen have a tracheostomy. But we just knew. I mean, you could you were able to be on CPAP during the day at the very end, but at night you still needed to have support to be able to really relax and rest because it was so much work to breathe. And so that's what you're talking about. Oh, feeling. It was. It, yeah. It, it was crazy. Just feeling took, exhausted, just breathing. 
But when you have such stiff and sick lungs and then weakened muscles, it just, even that natural breathing is not so natural anymore. No, it's not. And so you got a tracheostomy, but you were able to be off during the day, totally disconnected, which I thought was extremely impressive given how bad your, your lungs had been. But it just showed me that because you were walking, you were strong enough to do that work that it took to breathe. And COVID was about to come. And I was, we as a team were desperate to get you out because the last thing you needed was COVID, right? That's so what I heard is you guys wanted to get me out of there because of- you, you transferred out like an hour before the first COVID ca- patient came in. It was a miracle. And, and all the scared of that getting out of the hospital, I think, could there be a worse time to have serious <laughs> lung issues? Yeah, we, and LTACs were about to sh- shut down, right? So we, we got you out just in time. So you probably left a little bit earlier than most patients would. So you did go to an LTAC, which is very, very rare. 98% of survivors from the awake and walking ICU discharge straight home, but you did not have a normal course. You did not have a normal ARDS even. So you were going to an LTAC, you were on a trach, but you didn't have to be on the ventilator during the day. And when they came to pick you up, they passed by the office, the NP office and with a stretcher. And I, I suddenly realized it was for you. And I ran after them and I said, I almost tackled them. And I said, you are not depriving her of her glory. She has worked so hard. You parked that stretcher out the, out the, in the hallway, if you must, but my Megan is going to walk herself out of the ICU because that's what I promised she would be able to do if she worked as hard as she has. And so what it feel like to walk out of the ICU, to walk away from weeks of being on death's door. It crazy. It was, a, I don't know. It was, just, I was happy. I was nervous about where I was going, I, but I was, I felt like I must have done something right and something good because you were getting out of there. People clapping and stuff when I yeah, it was out. a huge celebration. Um, you know, I, it's always a celebration when a patient leaves the ICU and they leave the hospital. And I see a lot of these videos, you know, with COVID survivors and they're they're wheeling out in their their beds. And I wanted even more for you. And that's what you got. You walked yourself out. You were breathing on your own. You were off of a ventilator. You did have a trach, but, and you were going to LTAC, but that was brief. You stayed in LTAC for how long? I think three weeks to a month, about a month. But you were walking the whole time. When I left there, I remember they gave me so much information. I don't remember. That's why I'm learning new stuff like about (laughs) the sepsis. That explains a lot. I, because I was given so much information and. And you still were not yourself. Yeah. And walking out of there, I remember trying to walk to my stepdad's truck. And it wasn't too far away from the doors. And I remember I was kind of getting tired and lightheaded a little. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, am I am I ready for this? I should, maybe I should just go back. Yeah, it's a, it's, it must be so vulnerable. To have been that sick and that deconditioned monitored anymore and yeah it's a big deal and I think if 
from the ICU side, if we realized how big that moment is to go home. It's then, exciting, super exciting. Good. And, and, it, and it should be because you worked so hard. I mean, we spent almost like what, two months in a hospital setting. But if we saw the moment of you going to your dad's truck, we could visualize that moment from the moment you roll into the ICU. I really feel like that would change how we took care of patients like you. If we saw your risk factors, you know, if we saw PTSD as big of a risk factor as a kidney injury or um, chronic kidney disease, we would change the medications we gave accordingly. And that's what your team did for you. They saw you as a mom with a very young girl and you needed to be able to be physically, but also emotionally and psychologically capable of caring for her. But nonetheless, you did have um, delirium. You had it for a little over a week and that has really impacted you. Can you share with us what, what deficits or what impacts um, your life now after having delirium? I feel like I could have came out a lot worse reading other things, but the memory and I don't know, your, your whole brain just doesn't process things the same. I feel like it kind of changes. It takes more time or effort, I guess, to process everything. And and I'm grateful for what I do have. And when we reconnected, because I'd given you my my information, because I was hoping that you would be willing to share your story. I connected you to some of these survivor groups on Facebook. What has it meant to you to see other people's journeys? And I'm sure you were actually much sicker than a lot of the people that you're hearing from. So how would you compare the deficits you face now to some of these other survivors? I'm so glad you gave me that resource because reading those even if I don't comment on them, I'm reading them a lot. And it, it just makes you feel better that other people somewhat understand and you can kind of see what they went through and be a support for them as well. Yeah. And I don't think, I can't remember how I assembled onto survivor groups other than I was just curious about what life was like after, but I'm sure it's not standard protocol to set survivors up with other survivors, but you're saying that it's so helpful. And so why wouldn't we just say, Hey, you had delirium or, Hey, you were in the ICU. Obviously here is the option of going to a support group or connecting with people online. This will help you on your path to recovery. Yeah. I feel like I just didn't have a lot of information. I feel Like when I got out of the hospital, I wasn't really sure what I had, what you'd call it, I guess, is because my memory, I I was given so much information at once that just went over my head and what, what, I knew my lungs, I knew that, I knew that they were not great and garbage, (laughs) but I didn't know exactly what you'd call what I had. 
yeah, you and I have talked about the sepsis and, and the delirium. And I think I see a lot of survivors saying what did, what happened? Why did I have these scary dreams and hallucinations? And why do they come back to me now? And why can't I think normal? You probably see it all the time. Everyone's asking why. And, and I think a lot of it's because there is not common understanding of what's gone on. Do you feel like you've been supported with your mental health since leaving the ICU? That was one of our priorities. We wanted to set you up with mental health resources to be able to continue to combat your substance dependence and your PTSD and things that had been difficult obstacles even before the ICU. Do you feel adequately supported in that? I don't see a therapist or anything. I don't, but I never have. That's kind of my own not wanting to, I guess, or not sure about it. But that was offered to you before you left, correct? I I don't remember. I, I we had set it up before. No, it's okay. No, no worries. We, we had set it up before, but that's came in and did like a therapy session with me in the ICU, right? Uh-huh. I remember that. Yeah, we did have site come see you because you were going to face so much and we wanted to get you started on being supported. And I would love to see that change more that we, that we involved that because we send patients out with outpatient support for pulmonology, for nephrology, for, you know, anything that needs to be followed up on with the body. We have specialists that we send people to, but when the mind has been so broken and so damaged and traumatized, we don't even tell people that they might have these problems later, let alone provide support. So what would you share with the ICU community to help us understand what a survivor needs after having delirium? I think definitely the mental health support that, and honestly, things being written down and given to you Mm -hmm. are much better because there's so just so much information. And I guess I left both places. I left the ICU and then I left the rehab center. So I don't know that all the information got transferred over to when I finally left there. Yeah. And I think I try to give discharge instructions. I think it's really important to have the family or whatever support system present as well. And I try to inform the families, you know, while the patient's in delirium, Hey, this, this isn't just this week, this is going to be a lifelong thing potentially. And here's, and just repeat it. So the family's prepared to support you, but yeah, you can't really get that instruction to someone that's still recovering from a brain injury, essentially. Yeah. Cause I, I remember some of the information, but, and then when my hair started falling out because of the septic shock and during the summer, I had my hands and feet swell up for like huge. And I didn't know, I wasn't really sure what was going on. And, and then my hair just kept going and going and. And now it's come back curly, you know, as if you'd gone through chemotherapy, it came back curly and it's so cute, but I don't think, I definitely don't think I, I thought about telling your family about post sepsis syndrome. And so I think that's an important resource to include as well. 
yeah. um, that there is a life after the ICU and because it's not a huge deal in that moment you're so you're just happy to be out of the hospital and get everything health-wise going good it's just not I get that it's not like a priority your hair might fall you might it's yeah in, insignificant until you're at home two months later and all of a sudden but if an icy side if we were to provide you with a handout that said you've had sepsis go to this website because you will likely suffer from post ic post ic syndrome and or post sepsis syndrome then when you're in your right mind or your family's things are more calmed down you can go to that resource and go to that support group and have those resources because yeah it's hard to explain everything in a moment but even just to say this is what you've had and this is what this may mean later on someone has a kidney injury you know if they're they leave on dialysis we have discussions about what that looks like for their lives and if we expect that to be a lifelong thing and those kind of discussions but we should also provide that for all other kinds of ICU, ICU conditions as well. Yeah. And I think primary care also should be aware of that. So your primary care doctors are that how aware are they of your post sepsis and post ICU conditions? Not very much, probably from, I actually told him that I talked to you last time I had a virtual appointment and I don't think he knew about it at all before. I'm not sure, but. That's what a lot of survivors are reporting that they bring the symptoms to their primary care doctors because that's the only person available to continue their care after the ICU and they have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And they feel so alone. And it's not until they talk to other, other survivors that they feel validated. So I think you're, you make a good example of how there needs to be more communication between the two sides of the healthcare and that we need to give people warnings and give people support for follow-up. And so I don't know exactly what that looks like in the future, but I think your voice is going to help inspire that change and that awareness. Yeah, I think that would be amazing that I think the primary care doctor should just, that should be a given I feel like because when I even when I got home he was trying to get me to drop down my oxygen to totally wean off of it and trying to tell me to take it off at times and 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 your pulmonologist was like no this is going to be a long-term thing I would try it because I thought like everyone told me that I was close to dying and I didn't so and everyone tells me I'm going to be on oxygen forever. So, you know, I was, let's try it. And after a few weeks, I think he realized that this is how it's going to be. So, yeah, I mean, you have such a unique situation, but yeah, there's better co- communication between the ICU side at the ICU. One of our doctors or one of us could call your primary care physician and say, here's what her course really was like. I mean, I would hope that they would have access to your documents and the discharge summary from your ICU stay, but maybe not. So how can they know? They think that you just are recovering from a bad pneumonia. 
Yeah. Yeah. I know there's a lots of, a lots of gaps in our system. So in the end, we have to treat patients like they're going to have a life after the ICU. We're fighting for them to survive, but then we don't fight for them to have a life after the ICU. But I feel like your team, even while you were on a peep of 18, 100%, they still fought for you to be able to go home and be a functional mother for your daughter and enjoy your life. And I'm so glad that you're back. (laughs) You look so different. You look well-nourished. You have your oxygen, but you sound good. It's nice to hear your voice and see your curly hair. And I'm so proud of you and for you fighting to, to continue to thrive after all you've been through. And you were absolutely worth the fight. And I really feel like if you hadn't been in the awake and walking ICU, your, the rest of your life would have maybe not have been existent, but definitely would have been far different. I, I I feel that for sure. I know that getting up and walking and being, that's the only way it could have got better laying in bed. How how is anything going to get better? Nothing's right. Right. That's what I keep saying, Megan. That's what I keep saying. Just you say it like it's so simple, but it's not seen as that simple from the ICU side. But you having necrotic cafeteria pneumonia and septic shock and alcohol withdrawal and benzodiazepine withdrawal, you are making it, you're saying it that simply. You're saying, thank you for getting my butt out of bed. And that is powerful to hear that from a survivor, someone that's been there, someone that's experienced that you were on death's door for weeks and yet you walked through it. And I think you are going to be a force for good. So thank you so much for being willing to share your story with us, to be so vulnerable and honest with us. And I'm so proud of you. And I hope that your legacy impacts many patients to come, that more patients will be able to provide or receive the kind of care that you did and have providers be as determined to help patients thrive and not just survive. So thank yeah, you. Megan. Makes all the difference of, and I didn't love it there, but I loved the nurses and doctors. I really liked everyone. It was, and nice. I don't think anyone really likes their delirium either. So I'm like, I'm sorry. You're seeing my face. I'm sorry. We're in this situation, but I am going to distrust that this side of reality is going to be better than delirium. And this way you have a chance to have a life outside of the ICU. So keep supporting us as the ICU community and as well as survivors. We need you. You're worth the fight, Megan. Keep up the good work. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at 801-784-0472 or reach out to me on Twitter.